cloth in there. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Welcome, everybody. It's 7.16, so it's time for us to, <laughs> to start. And this is our second to the last session in Master Plan for Life, Lesson 25 and 26 tonight, both of them. And then next week's the last, and we'll be doing two lessons then as well, Lessons um, 27 and 28. But page 241, 241, and let me remind you about uh, what these last few lessons are, where they fit in. So you see up the upper right-hand corner, it's about the church, the objectives of the church. In the second part of Master Plan for Life, we're trying to answer the one question, why am I here? And biblically, why we're here is related to the mission that God is accomplishing through His church. And so that's why answering that one question has 12 lessons that are all about, all about the church. So if you, if I, if we are going to uh, participate in the purpose that God has left us here on earth, then it's going to be related to what He wants done by and through His church. So we saw the purpose of the church, and then the last several weeks we've been looking at the objectives of the church, and those are three. And in this order, evangelism, edification, and expansion. Those three, evangelism, edification, expansion. Evangelism gives you people that come to Christ, they're evangelized, they need to be built up in the faith. That's what edification means, to build up. And then if those two things happen, evangelism and edification, then the work of the church is going to expand. And that necessitates that we react to that expansion. So each of those three objectives, evangelism, edification, expansion, all have ways that you're to carry them out. And we've had individual lessons for each of those ways. So for uh, evangelism, we saw that it takes place personally, individually, through our personal witness, but also corporately, congregationally as well. So we had a lesson on each of those. And then that second objective, edification, is done three ways. It's done through uh, education, teaching those who have come to Christ, teaching them about God, teaching them about themselves, teaching them what the Word of God says, so that they can also, the second thing is worship. They, they know something about this God. They know something about His character, and therefore we can worship Him rightly and in a way that's pleasing to, to Him. And then thirdly, a third way that the Bible teaches that we achieve this objective of building up edification is what we saw last week, fellowship. So you have the, the vertical relationship between us and God in worship, and then you have the horizontal relationship between us and one another in fellowship. Now today, we have two lessons on the final, the third of those three objectives, evangelism, edification, now today starting expansion. Look at the top of page 241 then. We've reviewed the first two of the three objectives that Christ gave to the church, evangelism and edification. The result of achieving these is growth. Evangelism results in numerical growth, edification in spiritual growth. Growth in turn means the church's ministry is going to expand. So expansion is the third objective of the church. It refers to the development of new ministries within the church and the organizational structure that's necessary to carry those out. So you guys see what's being said there. If you're successful at evangelizing, that gives you more people. And then uh, if you're going to build those people up in the faith, that requires ways to do that, requires ministries to, to do that. 
And so as that means the church's ministry overall is going to expand. Uh, and that's why we call this objective then expansion. New ministries and organizational structure. Second paragraph. Though there is no biblical precedent for things like Sunday schools, children's church choirs, vacation Bible schools, seniors ministries, and so on, there are examples of expanded ministries within local churches which meet congregational needs. As these are added, there becomes a need for a Sunday school superintendent and teachers and youth ministers. So you see that. It's just the logical then, uh, it's the logical result, the logical consequence of the church doing what God has called us to do. And if we then grow, then we're going to have to accommodate that growth with appropriate ministries, and then there has to be organization around those ministries, a Sunday school superintendent, those kinds of things. You won't find any of those explicitly mentioned in the Bible. So they're not unbiblical, but they're extra-biblical. That is, they're outside of the Bible, but they happen, and we do them as a result of what the Bible tells us to do. And they're necessary, and you see examples of that kind of thing in the New Testament itself. So we've got these five principles of ministry management that can be learned from the first century church, that this expansion requires these five things, consistency, planning, creativity, cooperation, and accountability, those five. So we're going to see those. Now, this lesson, Lesson 25, I think can go fairly quickly, and it has to because we've got a second lesson where we're trying to do. So that's, that's fortunate. But, uh, so don't be surprised if we, if we get through this one a little bit quicker than the others. It, it does lend itself to that, though, thankfully. So the first of those, that expansion requires consistency. The early church ministered in a way that was consistent with the Word of God, consistent with the Word of God in a couple of ways. First, the commands of the Word of God. When the church was born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were no New Testament scriptures in existence. Sometimes we don't think about that, but you know, you come into church and, you know, every Sunday and I say turn to, we're going through the book of Acts, and I say turn to the book of Acts. But we don't remember sometimes that in the first century church, at the time the book of Acts was being written, the church didn't have the book of Acts. <laughs> they didn't have any of the 27 books that comprise our, our New Testament. They had the, the Old Testament. Those early believers sought to apply consistently the teachings of Christ concerning the church. Now, they didn't have those written down yet. They didn't have the first four books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are all about the earthly ministry of, of Jesus. Those weren't written down, but they had the apostles who were with him and who were taught by him and who in turn now were teaching these, these earliest believers. So they had the uh, teachings of Christ concerning the church. And then as God provided more revelation through the apostles, as the apostles uh, were uh, revealing God's truth through what they, they taught, but then permanently in what they wrote, then they sought to, the early church did, apply that truth as well. The early church was consistent with that revelation in applying specific commands concerning two things, their message and their methods. So they proclaimed a God-ordained message. The early church understood a pure message was indispensable uh, was an in, the indispensable core of the ministry. Biblical truth in its entirety, with the person and work of Christ at the center, was the exclusive message of the early church. And deviation from that message was not tolerated. Notice Galatians chapter 1. 
Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Really harsh, isn't it? I mean, it really is very direct, very, very harsh, but I'm not, not unnecessarily harsh, necessarily so, because the gospel is that important. And so Paul, who wrote that, would not tolerate any deviation from the pure good news of the, of the gospel. So, you know, and he wrote the book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians was about adding things to the work of Christ. You know, adding works to the work of Christ for your salvation. Now, are there, are there churches, are there lots of people who add works today to the work of Christ? But if a, if a preacher gets up and says something like Paul did, you know, you're, you're, being, you're being unkind, you're not being charitable, you're not being Christian, you're not, you know, all of that. And the truth is, the Bible is very censorious, very harsh against those who would deviate from the purity of the, of the gospel. So they practiced, uh, preached a God-ordained message, and top of page 242, they practiced God-ordained methods. Some methods used by the early church are to be practiced by all churches in every age. So we saw you know, methods like Sunday school and all that. Obviously, those aren't in the New Testament, but other methods are. These methods are standard not only because they were practiced by the early church in the book of Acts, but also because they are commanded in the letters of the New Testament, the epistles. For example, the church is to preach, that is authoritatively proclaim the truth, according to 2 Timothy 4, and we saw that practiced in the book of Acts. And converts are to be organized into local assemblies. We saw that back in Lesson 21. Discipline is in the church is to be maintained, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and so on. Because these are commands for the church to obey, they're not negotiable, nor are they expendable. So that's what makes something binding upon the church to do is that you see it in the book of Acts and you see it uh, written about in the, in the letters, both of those. You see the early church practicing it, and then you see it addressed in the letters in the New Testament. Uh, you know, you have, for example, in John chapter 13, the Last Supper. You guys remember the night before Jesus died, he's in this upper room, and he washes the feet of the apostles. Remember that? Now, when I was a kid in my Pentecostal church, every now and then there'd be a foot washing. The church had a service where there was a foot washing. So, you know, and this is the only church I knew as a, as a kid. And it seemed kind of weird, but I didn't have a whole lot to compare it to. But they believed because Jesus did that foot washing, we're supposed to do the, the foot washing. But you don't find that happening in the book of Acts. You don't find it happening in the epistles. Uh, now there is a reference, I should say, there's a reference to washing the saints' feet in 1 Timothy chapter 5 to widows who are widows who would be qualified to receive support from the church if they are in need. Uh, but most most Interpreters believe, and I believe, that means that's a metaphor for serving, serving the church, that this person has shown that they've been a servant, but not physically and literally washing the, the feet of, of people, that they've been hospitable, you know, because uh, that was actually why washing the feet was necessary, because you would have people come into your house 
and they had sandals on, they had dust on their, on their feet. That's why there would always be a basin there when somebody came in in those days, all of that. But you don't find it actually practiced in the book of Acts. You don't find it actually practiced in, in the epistles. But my, my church uh, did it. So if you, you guys ever wondered why we don't do foot washing? Probably not. Okay. So you guys are good that we don't then? Okay, good. <laughs> so there are these uh, God-ordained, uh, they the, the preached a God-ordained message and practiced God-ordained methods like preaching, like gathering converts into local churches, like doing church discipline. The early church was consistent with the, uh, with the precepts of the Word of God, the commands of the Word of God, but number uh, letter B on page 242 was also consistent with the principles of the Word. There were times when the early church encountered circumstances that were not directly addressed in the Scriptures. Since there was no specific command dealing with that circumstance, then they were responsible to deal with it in a manner consistent with the truth that they already knew. Here's an example of that. When that controversy arose in Acts chapter 6 about the widows being, uh, being served with the benevolence that the church gave to widows, you'll remember that the widows from the Grecian party complained that favoritism was being shown to the Hebraic party, so a controversy arose. Well, what do you do about that? There was no specific command of Scripture with regard to what to do about that. So we're told in Acts chapter 6 that uh, the apostles began with what they did know. They did know what their responsibilities were in the ministry. They said, we've got to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word, and they devised a plan that would allow them to fulfill what they did know and continue to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word, but also at the same time meet the, the need. This is the process of organizational management based on the principles of the Bible. So they came up with a way to do it, and we have to come up with ways to, to do stuff. Uh, we do it consistent with the principles of the Word of God, but we don't have specific commands for exactly how to go about that. I mean, think about the building we're in right now. You know, nobody's in, in the first century, nobody's in a building like that. Nobody has a shingle, nobody has a sign out. So, you know, we have to come up with this. Well, what do we do? We, we, we gather people together. Now, how are we going to gather them together? Where are we going to gather them together? And we come up with a method to do that that's consistent with the, the Word of God. And having a building that you can do the kinds of things we're doing here allows us to carry out what the Bible says, but there's nothing in the Bible that says you've got to have a building, you know, or that you have to own the building. Maybe you can rent the building if you leave, all of that. So we just have to use wisdom in applying principles uh, to our, our present ministry. So expansion requires consistency, a consistency uh, with the commands of the Word and the principles of the Word. Secondly, middle of page 242, it requires planning. Lesson 18 showed that contrary to popular opinion, the organizational expansion of the church did not just happen by itself. The early church actually engaged in extensive planning. For example, in Acts chapter 15, there was a controversy that arose as a result of the salvation of Gentiles. The question was, how do you integrate these Gentiles into the church along with the Jews? Would the Gentiles be required to submit to the Old Testament law of Moses? Did they have to be circumcised? And after debate, the issue was resolved and a plan was laid to circulate a letter to Gentile churches to explain the resolution. The carriers of the letter were selected 
and they were sent out on their mission. Now, when we go through the book of Acts, we'll see that when we get to chapter 15, but that's what happened there. Another example is that Paul did not haphazardly undertake his missionary journeys. That started in Acts chapter 13 that we'll see a few weeks down the road. So he goes on these missionary journeys, but he didn't just kind of go and say, you know, I'll just go and preach to wherever, you know, my ship lands. Um, but rather he had an itinerary. And he, he purposely planned what it was he was going to do. He established this itinerary because the Bible tells us on one occasion, the Holy Spirit somehow intervened to change his plans. And of course, the Holy Spirit couldn't change the plans if he didn't have the plans in the first place. So it's no accident that you have letters then in your New Testament to places like, like Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, or Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, or uh, Galatians, or Ephesians, and Colossians, and Philippians. These are all cities, Philippi, Colossae, Ephesus, all of these are cities that Paul went to that we read about in the book of Acts, and that he later then writes to, and, and thus we have those letters. But those cities, nearly all of them are commercial centers. So Paul apparently, on purpose, was going to go to population centers, places where people were, so that he could then have people to give the gospel and then use that as a center from which the gospel could, could go out. And that's, exactly, that's what, exactly how the mission went forward. But the point here is that it required planning, not haphazard. You know, and so the same thing should happen for us. As we think about ministry, we should think about strategically. You know, where do we plant a church? Where do we start a ministry? And then what do we hope to see happen out of that? And pray and ask the Lord to bless those efforts. So it requires planning. It also requires, bottom of page 242, creativity. The ministry of the church is impacted by changes in culture. In other words, we're required to minister the unchanging Word of God in ever-changing communities. This means that new needs and issues will arise that require thoughtful and fresh application of truth. Acts 6, Acts 15 noted above are examples of that creativity. Both of these illustrate the fact that appropriate creative action prepares the way for further spiritual and numerical growth. Because in both situations, that's exactly what happened. As a result of the church wisely and creatively taking care of the problem, the Bible says as a result of that, the mission continued to advance. So we have been given the responsibility to, to do that. Now let me just make a couple quick comments on that. This creativity idea that there are changes in culture, and so we have to minister the unchanging Word of God to changing cultural circumstances. Uh, you got to be careful with that. It's true. That's why we have it in here. But be careful how you apply that because lots of churches say, hey, the Word of God never changes, but you know, we, we roll with the flow. And so if the culture's doing something, then we do what the culture does. Well, we got to be careful about that, don't we? <coughs> Because whatever the culture is doing, that's not what we're saying here. Just mimic the culture. Because if you mimic the culture, guess what? You'll also be mimicking worldliness. Because a lot of what the culture does is worldly. You know, I define worldliness as fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in culture. And so if you say, we're just going to copy the way 
on Sundays, we're going to copy the way uh, the church does, uh, the, the world does music. So that when people come in, you know, they're used to a rock concert kind of venue. Let's make it look like a rock concert. Let's make them feel comfortable so that we can then give them the, give them the word. You know, Sunday morning, Saturday night, a lot, half of these people were out at a concert where they had a smoke machine. Get the smoke machine out here. Okay? And, there, and the lights were all dim. So let's get the, you know, and everybody looked a particular way. Let's look, let's, let's look the, the way, look the part. Now, am I exaggerating? This is exactly what goes on, isn't it? But the whole idea is that's what the world's doing, so let's do it so we can reach the world. Or to put it another way, let's be worldly to reach the world. So why does the world need you <laughs> if you're going to mimic what they do? Okay? So that's not, I think you get the hint, that's not what we're saying, saying there. Top of page 243, expansion, fourthly, requires cooperation. Churches often isolate themselves, even from other congregations of like faith and practice. Isolationism is detrimental to the body of Christ. Pastors and congregations alike need the encouragement and the assistance of like-minded churches. And this is particularly true, a particular danger when you are an independent church like ours is. You know, we're not part of a denomination, meaning an, an organizational structure. Uh, that So we are not kept together with other churches of like mind by an organizational structure, but rather by a cooperative network. But that cooperative network is, we think, very important. Uh, we're not interested in being isolated. Uh, we need the encouragement of others. I need the encouragement of other brothers and pastors. And so this cooperation happened in the New Testament, and it's something that we ought to value and try to pursue. Acts 15 has already been mentioned several times in this lesson because it's a good example of management practices in and cooperation between local assemblies. Multiple congregations were represented at that council meeting in Acts 15. They discussed various views and decided on a biblical solution. Churches of like faith and practice can and should cooperate today in a variety of ways, mission support. So churches should come together. Generally, one church is not going to have the resources to provide everything that a particular missionary needs. But if you put together the resources of several churches, then you can send a person out to far-flung places, right? So the 16 missionaries that we have, we contribute to them, but we contribute to them in partnership with a bunch of other churches as, as well. So mission support for training institutions, you know, to create a seminary generally is going to require, or a, or a Bible college or something like that, is going to require more than one uh, church can have. But churches can come together and, and have, and that's why, that's how many of the Bible colleges and seminaries that we know of uh, have been supported. Ordination councils. So a church has a young man who is uh, going to be examined for ordination to the ministry. And what churches do, and what we've done here uh, when we've ordained, is we invite other people to come and uh, examine. So we invite other pastors to come. Um, we invite profs from the seminary to, to come. And in this cooperative effort. So over the years, over the decades, I have sat on dozens of these ordination councils over the years. And I enjoy them because I enjoy grilling people about, about stuff. But uh, also, I enjoy you know, seeing brothers and cooperating in a, in a way like that. And so it's kind of a fellowship time 
uh, as well. Ordination councils, pastors' forums, just you know, pastors getting together. And I have a once-a-month thing that I go to uh, in uh, Novi, excuse me, Wald Lake. I was just out there last week, and there was about 15, 20 guys. And we always have a topic that we discuss, solve the world's problems, have lunch, and it's a great encouragement. And so I'm willing to make the drive out there uh, for, for that reason. Uh, on um, this Tuesday, I have a Zoom call. So once a month I do that. Once a month I also do the Zoom call with some guys, younger guys, who are doing church plants. And what we've got is older guys like me and then the younger guys doing the church plants. And we get on this call and the younger guys just say, hey, this is what's going on at my church. What do I do? <laughs> they're just looking for advice. And so there we are to give our best counsel to them. So cooperating for that kind of thing. Church planting, actually physically church planting. Our church here was planted out of our parent church where I served on staff for nine years, but uh, we were supported for the first two years of this church by 10 other churches that gave monthly support for our church until we could then pay our own rent at the place we were renting and, and get on our get our own two feet. So cooperation for church planting and then just for social interaction, just to get together in fellowship uh, is an encouragement. Uh, July the 24th, July the 24th, uh, we are invited and I would encourage you guys to consider going to our sister church in Allen Park, Intercity Baptist. Uh, that Sunday night, we'll be announcing it, July 24th. But for four successive Sunday nights, they are inviting churches that they had a, a hand in helping get started. They were one of the 10 churches that supported us when we, when we started. And so they're inviting me to preach that night, us to come, and then to have a time of fellowship after together. And then the other three, they've got some other churches that they've helped, and they're going to have their pastor preach. And they're gonna... So, kind of cool. And uh, it's an example of this social interaction thing we're talking about. And then lastly, expansion requires accountability. It's a crucial yet neglected aspect of biblical ministry. It functions on two levels. First, within the local church. Individuals are accountable for matters of belief. So if someone in our assembly uh, strays from biblical truth, and the only way we would know they've strayed from biblical truth is if they were, if they were teaching it somehow, right? promoting it somehow. But if somebody's promoting doctrinal error, then we need to hold them accountable for that. And uh, to say you can't do that, if they continue to do that obstinately, and it's not just a disagreement about an interpretation. You understand that. I mean, they're, they're, they are denying something that the Bible clearly teaches, and they're teaching contrary to that. Then we would have to lovingly confront them. And if they wouldn't change that, then we would have to exercise discipline over, over that to show them the error of their way. Matters of belief, but also matters of lifestyle, Second Thessalonians chapter 3 teaches as well. Therefore, many churches establish biblically-based policies and standards for workers as their ministries expand. So there is within the church, but lastly, accountability between local churches. I mean, what happens if, what would happen if you had a situation where uh, I was in, I was locked in a disagreement, a battle with the other guys on our leadership team? And let's say we're locked in a battle. We've got eight of us on the team, and it's four against four. Four on one side, four on the other side. I mean, what, 
What, what would you do? Well, what, you sh- what we should do is we should be plugged into other churches so that we could call some other people in to help arbitrate this. And uh, in fact, this network of churches that we are connected with would be glad to help us to do that. And so thankfully, we would have people to call on to do that. One of the missions agencies that we support is called Five Stone Churches. And that's a, ch- that's a network of churches. And the guy who's the head of that uh, Gordon is a guy who actually does this kind of thing somewhat regularly where if there's a dispute that goes on in church, people will call him to come in and help arbitrate that. But the point is you have to do that and, you have to, and the only way you can do it is if you have people to do it with. And the only way you're going to have that is if you haven't isolated yourself. All right. Well, look at Lesson 26 then, and that's on page 249. So 30 minutes down, 30 minutes to go, Okay. And this is now the second way, this lesson, Lesson 26, is the second way that expansion is carried out, the objective of expansion. The first way is by this uh, consistency uh, that the church engages in, in the five areas that we looked at. But now the second way is through stewardship. This lesson is about stewardship. And this is about giving, giving of money, yes, but not only money, as we will see. As a church expands, it's going to have to have resources. It's going to have to have human resources and financial resources in order to accommodate what it has and minister effectively and, Lord willing, to uh, minister beyond that. Top of page 249. Ministry growth takes place as local churches focus on the first two objectives of evangelism and edification. That growth, in turn, requires expanding means through which the enlarged ministry is managed. Expanding management is the coordination of two important facets of the church. Organizational structures, that's what we were looking at in the last lesson, and ministry resources. The last lesson dealt with the expanding organizational structures. This lesson deals with the resources. Church resources take two forms, human resources, material resources. These resources are made available through the application of stewardship. So we're going to see the foundation, the profile, the example, and the importance of stewardship. First, the foundation of stewardship. Before any explanation of the principle of stewardship can be attempted, we have to understand two foundational concepts. First, God is the creator and the owner of all things. That's non-controversial, right? But in its application, it might be difficult because what it means is we don't own a thing. I don't own anything. I mean, from, you know, from a legal standpoint, from a human standpoint, you, know, you own a car, you own a house, you own a, you know, a bunch of things, as do I. But from God's standpoint, I don't own anything. Who's the owner? God's the owner of, of everything. He's, and as a matter of fact, He owns me. <laughs> you are not your own, the Bible says. You are bought with a price. So everything that I have is on loan from God. So was it Rush Limbaugh that used to say, talent on loan from God? I think he used to say, and he was kind of joking, but there's actually truth to that, right? Whatever talent you have are on on loan from from God. So God is the creator, and He's the therefore the owner. So, secondly, we don't really own anything. Top of page 250. So here's the profile of a steward. You see as you go down uh, those those three enumerated points on page 250, one, two, and three, 
You see the verses that are listed there, Luke chapter 12? They're all from Luke chapter 12. And the reason they're all from Luke chapter 12 is because that's a parable that Jesus told that illustrates what stewardship is. So here's the profile of the steward. First, you see the office of a steward. The steward, according to what Jesus taught, is given a trust. He's given a responsibility by another. So somebody else, you know, in our case, of course, God, and God entrusts stuff to you. You're, and you, you have a responsibility now to use his, what he's entrusted to you. The office of steward was common in biblical times. It referred to one who was entrusted to oversee the affairs of someone else. The term literally means one who manages a household. A stewardship is that which has been entrusted to the care of the manager. Administration is a synonym. So you and I then are called by God to administer his stuff. The New Testament uses the concept of the steward to describe the life task of the believer. God has given his children a task to accomplish, namely the mission, and the resources necessary to accomplish it. And Christ illustrated that in many parables, one of those in Luke 12. Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? So he's given a trust. Secondly, the steward is to then oversee, administrate that trust. We're responsible to utilize all the resources entrusted to us by God to accomplish the appointed task. Remember, whose household is it? It's God's. All the resources belong to Him and so have to be managed accordingly. Jesus said in that parable, It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions." So the master is going to come back and check as to how we're, how we're doing. He's going to come back or we're going to go to him in dying or in the Lord's return. Thirdly, the steward is accountable for the performance of his task. A time coming when God will demand this accounting of his affairs and how they've been managed. The accounting will be based on this principle, the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. This is where Jesus said famously, See it there, Luke 12, 48. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So the more God gives, then the more we are to use and to multiply for His, His purposes. So that's what a steward is, a manager, someone who's been entrusted with someone else's, in this case, God's resources. So what are those resources? That's the bottom of page 250. Many believers have the mistaken notion that stewardship means they must give God a portion of their resources. But true stewardship is founded on the knowledge that all that we have and all that we are belong to God. You guys hear Pastor Larry says that pretty much every week before we uh, receive the offering. And you know he'll, he'll remind, he'll say, everything we have, everything we are belongs to God. And this is a demonstration of just giving back a portion of that to the Lord. And the believers in Macedonia understood this, and they devoted themselves entirely to the Lord. Any gift that they gave to the ministry was a consequence of this devotion. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 5 at the bottom of page 250. They exceeded, Paul says, our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So they gave themselves, they devoted them, their very selves to the Lord, not just you know, money, but themselves. 
So what is it that we are to give? Well, we, we give ourselves to the Lord, and the way we express that giving of ourselves to the Lord is what you see on page 251. We are managers of the time that God gives us. So it means you're supposed to think about how you use your time. I'm supposed to think about how I use my time. And how can I maximize my time for the one who gave the time? We've all got the exact same amount of time, right? But we allocate it differently. And there are necessities that are imposed upon us differently. You know, if you have, if you're living with an elderly parent or you have an elderly parent living with you and you're taking care of them, well, then you've got that going on. And that's going to take time. And that's a, that's a God-given responsibility for you to carry out. And so there might be other things that you might look forward to doing in the ministry of the church, that kind of thing, but God has given you this to concentrate on for that period of time. So we've all got different circumstances. Our work situations are different. So if your work situation you know, requires you to work 60 hours a week, somebody else is you know, 35 or 40 hours a week, you know, that's, that's all different. But we are to manage every piece of it for God. And so I need to see what I'm doing for that elderly parent. I need to see what I'm doing at work, whether it's 35 hours or 65 hours, as for God. And I need to try to maximize my time uh, in carrying out the Lord's mission. Believers must, top of page 251, think through the use of their time seven days a week. Work, family time, recreation, rest, time at church must be used wisely to fulfill God's purposes. Ephesians 5, be very careful how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The King James Version of that is where it says, some of you might remember this, redeeming the time. It says, because the days are evil. The NIV says, making the most of every opportunity. So it's using your time wisely for the one who gives you that time. And we're stewards of our talents, stewards of our talents. Each believer has abilities that God intends to be used to accomplish His purposes. Everyone that's ever been saved, everyone who's ever come to Christ, is expected by God to serve in active ministry in some capacity. Why? Because we all have, Romans 12, different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So it's the grace of God that's given to each of us. So I have particular talents, you have particular talents. The Bible calls them gifts. You have giftings, you, you have natural giftings, um, personality. Uh, you're wired a particular way where God has this diversity in His body. And we bring all of that together. And I am always amazed and thankful and grateful for the people that God brings together in His church and that all have different kinds of talents. And when people especially are willing to use those for the one who, who gave them. But don't exempt yourself from that, because that's true for every believer that we have, all of us, have giftings that are to be used for the Lord. So that's why we try to plug everybody into some area of ministry. And we try, if we can, to, to create uh, an area or plug you into an area that fits the way God has shaped you. 1 Peter 4.10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So we are stewards of the time God gives, the talent God gives, and then the treasure God gives, our material goods. Material goods have the capacity 
for great good or to inflict great harm. The New Testament devotes a great deal of space to the discussion of the proper use of material goods by the Christian. Many passages offer warnings about the improper use of material goods. Here's 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Let me just stop there. I mean, think about that. If we have food and clothing, and that's just shorthand for the necessities of life. I mean, notice shelter's not there, but shelter would be <laughs> included. But the necessity, if we have the necessities of life, we will be content with that. You know, so uh, it is none of our, it's none of our jobs, not my jobs, not yours, and, and may it never be that any of us get in the business of evaluating what other people do. Each one of us stands or falls before our Lord. And we each have to make decisions about that. But uh, for my part, as a leader in the church, I want to model before the church an attitude toward the world's goods that says, I don't really care about the world's goods. <laughs> I don't care. You know, I, I need a roof over my head. I need to be able to get around. You know, I need food. I need the necessities. And if I've got the necessities, I'm content with that. And I think we, and I know the Bible teaches that we should all take that seriously, that we model that before the Lord uh, and, and model that before His people. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And the many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for, because... The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You know, that's sometimes misquoted. Money is the root of all evil. But it doesn't say money. It says love of money. Money is actually quite neutral. <laughs> it's what you do with the money. It's, it's how, you, how you attach yourself to the money, how much you pursue the money, how much the money means to you, how much not having the money means to you. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So there's a warning to Timothy from the Apostle Paul. James chapter 5 highlights several of the common sins associated with the love of money, placing trust in that which is temporary, hoarding rather than using it for good, using dishonest means, living in luxury, practicing self-indulgence. Biblical stewards must combat each of these temptations regarding material goods. So believers are, you've already seen three things that we are to manage, we're entrusted with, with time, with talent, with treasure. But then here's a fourth one, the message of, of the gospel. We're entrusted with that and we are to steward that. Paul considered the message that he preached to be his greatest responsibility. I have become the church's servant by the commission, that's the word for stewardship, that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And 2 Timothy 2 indicates that that stewardship is the task of every generation of believers. So together, guys and gals, we at the, at the church, at God's church, it's not just me, it's not just the leaders of the church, although we have a primary responsibility to guard the truth, but all of us have a responsibility to make sure that the message remains pure, the one that you give from your lips, the one that you hear from my lips, and if you see deviation in that, then to, to take action. And then here's the example of stewardship. So how do I go about uh, doing this? 
biblically. Paul devoted 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 to the subject of an offering that was taken for famine relief for the churches in Palestine. Though the subject matter of these passages deals exclusively with material goods, some of the principles also apply to every sphere of stewardship, like our talents and our time. So we're going to see this example. It's an example of money, but it's not just the principles apply to the time and the talent as well. Okay. So the time of giving, when did, when did that happen? Well, in the New Testament, that happened on Sunday. 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Now, the significance of that is twofold. First, the use of funds designated for ministry was to be channeled through the local church, which came together on the first day of the week, on Sunday. So let me just stop there then. Uh, I don't say this a lot. I've maybe said this twice in 20 years, <laughs> but you're getting it for the third, you're getting the third one. But it, it really, that um, there are a lot of good people out there, that, you know, thankfully, a lot of lousy people in terms of teaching the Bible wrongly and all of that, but there are a lot of good ones. And thankfully, you know, some of them write books and they're on the radio and I benefited from them and you have, and we have some of their things in our resource center. And I thank God for that, really. Um, but support of ministries outside the church is not our primary responsibility. You know, so uh, nobody's accountable to me in terms of who you give money to. All I can tell you is, biblically, the priority is the local church. The local, the church is what carries out the mission. It's not the para-church. It's not the things beside the church that are not the church that are outside the church. It's not all of that. Uh, and you, you do get good people who give to their church, but they also give to, you know, this other stuff. And again, that's between them and God. I just suggest to you, that you think about the fact that God, God makes the church the channel through which He accomplishes His work. Secondly, since giving was to be done while the church was assembled, it has to be viewed as a part of worship. In fact, the act of giving is called the service of worship in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So the time of giving, when the body comes together. That's why we take an offering, when we come together. The place of giving. As noted above, the offerings were taken to the local church. That's because the church is responsible for the administration of the funds. Without direction and accountability established by the church as a body, confusion or worse would dominate. What would the worst be? I mean, confusion, the worst could be you know, theft. The, the worst uh, could be embezzlement. You hear about those kinds of things, right? Um, and so there, there has to be accountability if the church is running its affairs in a way that's God-honoring, consistent with the character of God, then it won't have you know, one person writing the checks. It won't have the pastor, for heaven's sake, <laughs> writing the checks and controlling the money. Uh, so I don't control a cent. I don't, I can't, I'm not on the checking account. I can't write a check for the, for the church. And that's perfectly fine with me. Um, the church allots to, you know, we have a budget that the church approves. And I have, a, we have, the staff has a staff expense account in case we have to spend money, you know, for the church and that kind of thing. But that's all accounted for. But I don't, can't write checks. I don't see who gives the money. I don't count the money. None of that. But the people who do have a very strict system for doing that. And nobody ever does it alone. There are always 
people together doing it. You know, even if any of the people who are involved in that ministry would never think about taking any money, not having them do it alone protects them against the accusation that they did. I mean, think about it. If if you're doing that alone, you're counting the money alone, and then you just miscount. Well, then it looks like, you know, and you you said, you know, there was $8,000, but there actually turned out to be $6,000. Well, what happened to the other two? And then you're you're open to an accusation. You've got nobody there to witness it for you. So having at least a couple of people there. So we've got checks upon checks, you know, um, accountability checks, I mean in order to keep that kind of thing from happening. Middle of that paragraph, it was the local churches that were involved in the management of the funds collected by Paul. Paul took great pains to ensure the wise use of those funds, both in reality and in perception. I want you to see that. That the way he set up how this was going to be done meant actually this was going to be done on the up and up. But he also wanted it to look that way. (laughs) He wanted people to see it that way. He wanted to make sure it appeared that way, that it was perceived as on the up and up. And he went out of his way to do that. Look at what he he says here so that there could be no accusation of a misuse of funds. Bottom of page 252. We are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what's right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Do you see what he's saying? There's a bunch of us involved here. And they are all people of the highest character. And therefore, you can have confidence in what's, what's happening here. So there's the time of giving, there's the place of giving, there's the attitude of giving. Stewardship giving is not compelled. New Testament giving is not a matter of law. You know, in the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible it was regulated. So you had something called the tithe. And the tithe was 10%. And many believe if you calculate all of the tithes that were involved, you know, you had yearly tithes, you had weekly tithes, you had a number of them, and you had every third year tithes. <laughs> so if you put it on an annualized basis, it comes out to 23 and a third percent of one's income in the Old Testament. So sometimes, you know, we'll say 10% is the tithe, and tithe does mean a tenth, but there were multiple tithes in the, in the Old Testament. But that was the law. It was kind of a taxation system in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, you don't have the Old Testament law. And so giving flows from the recognition that all that we have and are belongs to God. 2 Corinthians 9, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And stewardship giving should be counted as a privilege. Paul had not considered soliciting funds for that special offering from the churches in Macedonia. He knew that they were impoverished and they were oppressed. And yet when they heard of the need, they begged to be included in this cooperative effort. They considered giving to be a privilege. 
even when they were in great need themselves. Here's what it says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. It's a kind of attitude. And then it's to be done cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, each of you should give what you've decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for, because... God loves a cheerful giver. How much are we supposed to give? Stewards give according to their income. Occasionally someone will say, I can't give anything, but if I had a million dollars. But statements like that mask excuses rather than communicate true desires. God is concerned that believers worship with the wealth and talents they do possess, not the ones they don't. Right. So the widow and what the King James calls the widow's mites, Right? She has her two coins. Is a timeless example of giving that pleases the Lord. She gave all she had, so it wasn't the amount, it was the, the sacrifice. So it's to be according to income, and top of page 254, it's to be as much as possible. The New Testament does not teach a specific percentage of one's income to be given. The legislation of the tithe in the Old Testament can only serve as an example of an initial minimum consideration to the work of the ministry. So that's the way I say it to people. I say consider starting with 10%, which can be hard if you've never been used to giving. Uh, you have to, might have to restructure things in order to be able to, to do that. But if God has, ble- if God has blessed you with uh, abundance, then 10% and then having 90% to do a bunch of stuff that is going to burn up you know, one day is not being a great steward. It might, it might mean a lot more than that. And there are great examples of Christians, wealthy Christians, who um, uh, gave multiple tens percents of their, their money. A guy named R.J. Letourneau, he was a guy who invented and patented like earth-moving equipment. There was a, a university, and I think it's in Arlington, Texas, Letourneau University, named after him. He was a Christian guy, but he made a zillion dollars off his uh, earth-moving equipment. But uh, he gave 90% of his income to the, to the Lord's work because 10% was plenty enough for him to, you know, to live on. So it just depends on how much someone has. The importance of stewardship. The practice of stewardship is important for at least two reasons. It brings glory to God. Believers glorify God by praising His greatness and mimicking His goodness. When His affairs are managed well by His people, then His character is made known. Therefore, it's indispensable to the Christian life. It's an active faithfulness. It's required of those who have been given a trust to prove faithful. And it's an expression of Christ's likeness. Paul urged the Corinthians to give liberally in order to imitate the supreme act of giving that was seen in the act of giving by Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. So it brings glory to God and it accomplishes the work of the ministry. God determined to accomplish His will by entrusting His work to believers. Apart from the commitment of God's people to be faithful stewards, the work of the ministry cannot progress. I mean, think about that. God has placed it with us. He's given us, us together this awesome responsibility and privilege. So stewardship of time and talent provides the human resources necessary for the ministry. And top of page 255, stewardship of Financial assets provides the material resources for the ministry. 
The New Testament letters give several examples of the way financial resources of the church should be used. They should be used. One of the things the New Testament teaches is to meet the needs of pastors and their families. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Timothy chapter 5, both, uh, both teach those. So as a recipient of that grace on the part of God personally and God's, God's people, uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here other than to say that uh, God has been very gracious to us. He's been very gracious to us through uh, the giving of His people, administered through the checks and balances kind of system that I talked about that we have to make sure that our finances are administered well, and by a leadership team who takes this principle seriously so that they make sure that Kim and myself and my two daughters as they were growing up had what we, had what we needed. And that's all we cared about was having what we needed, but they gave us what we needed. And, you know, we're thankful to have Pastor Larry on full-time staff now uh, as well. And so I just say I'm just very thankful because I do know pastors who have to beg, you know, and try to and, and scrape together a, a living, and we haven't, had, we haven't had to do that, and I'm very thankful for that. To meet the needs of pastors, but also to meet the needs of missionaries. I mentioned that we have these 16 uh, missionaries. Well, that's because uh, the church gives faithfully and we're able to do that. I just had a missionary contact me this week, another great missionary. Uh, I know the guy. I've known him for years. Uh, he's graduated from our seminary locally here, and uh, he spent a number of years in Tanzania and East Africa. The government there changed their requirements for who could be there and do religious work, so he had to, he had to move on, but he's established the gospel there in a way that will live on you know, for generations. Uh, so now he's going to do a different work in Central Africa. And he contacted us about helping him. And at our next family meeting at the end of July, uh, I'm going to, if he, I've asked him if he can be there uh, our, at our Zoom meeting in order to introduce himself, introduce that work. I'm going to talk to our leadership team about the possibility of uh, supporting them. But uh, what a blessing to have people like these guys. I'm telling you, the 16, and if we add this guy, 17 missionaries that we have, they are just salt of the earth, the greatest people. They are, and they are quality people that you are happy. I, I wish we had more money to give these guys to carry out what they're, and gals, their wives. And then lastly, to meet the needs of others. As we have opportunity, Galatians 6.10, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Notice what that's saying. Help everybody with your physical resources, your material goods. Um, be willing to help everybody, but prioritize, especially those who are of the household of faith. And that's exactly what we do here. We've had time to time, we've been able to help people outside the church, but we also prioritize benevolence, benevolence to those in the church. So the box is, it's because of the stewardship of the gospel that believers manage the time, talent, and wealth that God has entrusted to their care. Now, O ye of little faith. You did not think we could get those two lessons done, did you? Well, we got them done. We're going to get two more done next week. Lessons uh, 27 and 28, and then that will be the end of Master Plan for Life. See you next week, Lord willing. By the light.